You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, January 19th, 2011, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hello, everyone. How's everyone doing? Graham, really worried about this Y2K38 problem now. What now? Yeah, it's it's a big problem. Well, so today, instead of uh, today in science history, we're going to do today in science future. Ooh. I like it. Yeah. What what happens, or more specifically, what is going to happen on this day in the future? Skynet. Now, how could we possibly know such a thing? Because the Terminator came back in time to warn us. <laughs> that and... It's, and highly, it's highly predictable. January 19th, 2038 will culminate what is known as the 2038 problem. Uh, we all remember Y2K, right? Barely, yeah. And, and all the excitement that went along with that, how once all the computers hit the year 2000, there was going to be failures and crashes and Cats problems. and dogs living together. The end of civilization as we know it. Mm-hmm. Lights would go out in the house during New Year's and everything like that. So... <laughs> there is a uh, problem coming up in the year 2038 in which computers are going to run into kind of a similar problem. Most programs that are written, I guess these days, in the C programming languages were immune to the Y2K problem, but they suffer from the year 2038 problem in which uh, the library established a standard four-byte format for the storage of time values. And what that means is they're going to run out of digits in that storage time value on January 19th, 2038. That's where the problem lies. What happens after that? So you were saying on that date, it's actually going to need another digit? So it'll wrap around, and a lot of computer programs might think it's 1901. 1901. Right. And they have no idea what's going to happen. I don't understand. What what method of keeping numbers is that? (laughs) I mean, it's not... Well, they use a 32-bit integer... Right, so that's the number, and that number is the number of seconds since uh, Thursday, January first, nineteen seventy, which I guess was the start uh. of the dating method, and that yeah, the number of seconds will run out in that thirty-two bit in- integer uh, in twenty thirty-eight. But didn't they fix this problem in Y two K? Didn't they realize that they were just setting themselves up for another date problem in thirty-eight years? You think they would have that's- said, "Hey, let's." Yeah, I mean, this seems really stupid and short-sighted. They said what the primary fix is going to be is they're going to, I guess, take these existing 4-byte integers and turn them into 8-byte values instead, and it's apparently not going to be too difficult to do that. That should give them exponentially more uh, numbers to circulate through, and it will be a problem that will get kicked down the road many, many years from now. But my take on this is, I mean, we're talking 27 years from now. I can't think of any software that we're going to be using 27 years from now that is around. Uh, I wouldn't say that. I mean, is oh yeah, I wouldn't say that either. I mean, yeah, like, that's well, that's what they said in the 1970s about the year 2000. No, I got you. I, I I get that. I get that. But you know, I think about things like Moore's law, and I think about how fast we're advancing in these. things. I know people who are still on AOL. No, what's what's that? <laughs> really? Like, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> I they actually are rocking an AOL email account and everything. Yes. Oh my yes. god. Yes, AOL is I know a very loud. prominent skeptic, in fact, who has an AOL email address. 
I won't I won't say this person's name, but yeah. But I will say that you know, just you know, leave it to humans. They'll what? they'll still be using the same crap. But Evan, the thing is, you know, sometimes like uh, basic software functionality will use a kernel, and you know what I mean, like a, a core bit of software that that that's still yeah, of, that, right? that gets built off of. Especially since you know we will be having word processors and databases, and you know lots of the that basic kind of software will still be around. Also, you have to think of not not like off the shelf consumer um, applications, but the software that runs. But, you know, basic things like tr- train systems and banks and communication software, sort of industrial software that once it gets in place, it stays around for a long time. And, you know, part of the problem is it's incredibly costly. And, like, it's sometimes dangerous to move to a new system. The does, the risk is not worth the effort. Yeah, I, I, but I think yeah, I also agree with Evan's thinking that, you know, how could it possibly, you know, in, in that amount of years from now and how fast that computers are evolving, you'd think that they would, it would become irrelevant at some point, that they would be able to find a... a well, certainly before 27 years from now, we are, I mean, we're talking many generations of computers between I agree. Years. I mean, the, the difference between computers in 1973 and 2011, uh, it's not going to be as great as, as the difference between 2011 and 2038. So, I, yeah, you're right. There's going to be lots of generations of computer software in between then, and we'll just have an AI fix it. That's all. Hey, guys, <laughs> I, um, I wasn't going to mention this at the start because I felt that it was a bit um, pedantic, but we've received a number of emails that support my position on this, so I'm going to go ahead and say it. Can you please say 2011 instead of 2011? Because no. it's fewer syllables, it sounds better, it sounds cooler. Did I, I say, mean, what did I say? You said 2011. OMG. 2011, 2038, 2000, 2020. Uh, it's so nice. It's so sorry. It's clean. Are we saying we shouldn't say 2011? Is it 2011 no. okay? No, no 2000 is too much. 2011. See how easy that is? Nice and clean and simple. Now, did, it's, did the it's... person that wrote this in also have that AOL account? <laughs> <laughs> no. I, this has been decided. The internet has already decided that this is the correct way to pronounce. Oh, you, you, you saw this I on ch- I challenge your authority. <laughs> you can't challenge the internet. I don't think this is pedantic. I think this is just saying, do things my way. For purely aesthetic reasons, and not but not but the- we do we do a lot of things for purely aesthetic reasons uh, with the English language, and I don't think that it's so bad to to submit yeah, but to our, that in this case. Our our aesthetics are better than your aesthetics. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> demonstrably gonna- <laughs> untrue. Uh, here's an aesthetic. I'm going to call it two ot eleven, and I'm going to start a new trend. <laughs> I'm fine with that, actually. Oh my god. <laughs> Now, if anyone would like to continue this conversation with me over email, it's evan at compuserve.com. <laughs> um, I'm just going to say, you know, M-M-X-X-V-I-I-I. It's good. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. All right, let's do some news. Uh, Rebecca, tell us why some people are upset about ghosts in their backyard. Well, because they are superstitious fools. Ha ha. No. Ah, okay. <laughs> uh, no, actually, I, I don't even believe that. And um, I will explain why in a moment. But the news is that there is a building complex um, on the campus of the University of British Columbia. 
there there are plans to build a hospice building um, nearby to this condominium, and the residents are appealing. They are protesting. According to one resident who's quoted, 80% of the residents in the building are Asian, and 100% of them are very upset. And what they're saying is that in their Chinese culture, they they are saying at least that in the, in the Chinese culture, um, ghosts and spirits are um, are very bad, and that having people who are near death so close to you is extremely bad luck, and therefore they do not want dying people in their backyard, which is pretty horrific. That's a pretty horrific sort of stand to take. Anybody who knows what hospice does. I think anybody who's ever seen hospice in action has an appreciation for how amazing it is. It, you know, for families who can't adequately care for people who are dying, hospice steps in and they can make a huge difference in, in someone's life. And it is about someone's life. It's not really about, about death. It's about making people's lives better. So it's absolutely disgusting that, that people are claiming that this hospice shouldn't be built in their backyard yeah. um, because of ghosts and spirits. However, if you talk to actual um, Canadians with with Chinese backgrounds, um, I, I would think that most of them would also find this repugnant and would probably point out that it's actually not that big of a deal and that people these days don't have any such superstitions about having dying people near them. And it seems to me what this is really about is about falling house prices. Um, they're afraid that this building, having a hospice this close to their fancy condominium might reduce the prices of their condominiums. So I don't think that they're superstitious at all. I think that they are using outdated superstitions that no one actually holds or that the majority certainly don't hold as yeah. an excuse to prevent a hospice from being built, which is disgusting yes. on pretty much every level. Not only um, because it's preventing something from being built that would substantially improve people's lives, but also because they are um, making Chinese Canadians look like idiots. <laughs> you know, I can yeah. just imagine the f- giant facepalm that every person of Chinese descent is doing right now in that area um, because they're being made to look like superstitious fools when I'm sure that nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, I mean, if you read the comments to a lot of the articles on this story, there are, I see many from Chinese Canadians who are saying, actually, our culture teaches respect for the elderly, not right. this nonsense. And that yeah. the, the, the maximally cynical you know, view of what What's going on here is, as you say, it's basically a bunch of rich uh, tenants of this you know, high-priced condominium complex trying to protect their property values and playing the cultural sensitivity card as a way of making their case rather than just being honest. Exactly. I hate that card. Yeah. <laughs> well, because what would they do? What do they do in China when people, you know, are in this position? What do they do? They shove them off away to they some put them on an iceberg. Far- Actually, the Chinese <laughs> government no, outlawed uh, dying in China. So, <laughs> well, dying so close to a whole bunch of people, it's, it's punishable no by death in China. They should keep track of of the people that are fighting against this, and when it's their turn to go to hospice, they should be like, "Ah, oh, we're sorry, we're full." <laughs> yeah, I mean, where are they expected to go die in peace? Like, 
yeah, it makes no sense at all. Yeah, well, these people are rich. They'll have home hospice. Mm, but uh, the other thing is this is a 15-bed hospital. I mean, this is not Ooh. a problem. 15 beds is nothing. So, yeah, this caught our attention because of the ghosts and bad luck angle, but it turns out that it's probably not really about that. Uh, Bob, this one's been sitting uh, on the back burner for a couple of weeks, but you're going to tell us finally about a new project to simulate the entire Earth. Finally. Yeah, this one This one was pretty cool. Scientists are apparently looking to create the most complex simu- simulation ever devised. They're looking to build a simulation, as Steve said, of, of the Earth to calculate the ultimate question to life, the universe, and everything. Oh, wait a second. <laughs> Sorry. I got to stop reading those Hitchhiker's books. Actually, the idea is to create a software simulation of the Earth, not to figure out what 42 means. I but already to played stop- that, though, like way Did back you? in the day. Sim Earth? Yeah. I used to play that all the time. Yeah, this is a little bit more complicated. They're not going to build a, build it to scale, build an actual Earth size. Yeah, one one-to-one. One. <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> Let's see how that turns out. <laughs> so the idea is to simulate the natural and cultural events happening on, on the Earth with enough fidelity that it could actually uh, provide helpful information you know, to help us make, just make decisions. This effort is being led by Dr. Dirk Helbing, who's a professor of sociology at the ETH Zurich Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, and he and an international team of scientists are collaborating on this project, and they're calling it now the LES, or the Living Earth Simulator. Now, when I first saw this, my first idea was, maybe you guys felt similarly, that this is just Google Earth on steroids, right? You know, by that I mean that's like a high resolution, but essentially, you know, slow to change representation of the Earth, but, but this is the Living Earth Simulator, so... The main idea is to feed this simulation in real time with... With human souls, right? (laughs) Ooh, I like that idea. But with many thousands of separate streams of data of uh, of what's happening in the world right now, whether it's weather activity, financial transactions, disease spread, even road congestion. You could really put anything, you could incorporate anything in there. Um, now, this isn't just going to be just this pretty, you know, data-driven graphics. The potential here is pretty interesting, and I've, from two points of view that I could see. One is that um, the simulation could act as a global prediction engine. So you could conceivably predict things like, let's say, for example, the spread of disease. Um, you could anticipate instabilities or even the collapse, say, of financial systems, which could have come in handy a couple of years ago. Um, it could warn us about any, any number of potential crises that might have gone unnoticed otherwise. So that's pretty interesting. Um, now, this is one of the benefits of having all this data under one roof if you will, because these types of simulations, all these separate data streams, I mean, they're, you know, they're being examined somewhere, but when you put it all together, uh, that's when you could potentially pick out these patterns and trends that we, that we would have seen otherwise. The other benefit that I could see from this is that this simulation is a model of Earth, obviously, and models are, are ideal for running scenarios, right? To see what happens. So you tweak your, right. you tweak your input a little bit and you see if the model produces a more favorable outcome. So an, an obvious example would be what? Climate change, right? What would happen? Yeah, turn up the greenhouse gases. Right. So what happens? Okay. What, yeah. What happens to the weather? Uh, what happens to the world economies if we lower carbon emissions by 12% or what about 40%? And just to see what happens. Bob, you have to, you have to understand that Hearing what you're saying right now, it just seems like a, a completely useless experiment because, number one, just using weather as an example, how could we possibly simulate the world weather? Well, it wouldn't predict weather. It would predict climate. Right. You know, it wouldn't really help us predict the weather any more than we can right now. Well, no. Well, why not? I mean, yeah, climate 
as well, but why not weather? I mean, we're predicting weather now, aren't we, to a certain extent, however many days in the future. Why not use this as part of that, you know, yeah, well, that could sim- be one simulation? Of the, that could be one of the data streams you feed into it, but yeah, of course. I don't see how this is going to re- help us predict weather any better than we can right now. No, no, no. The, for, for things like that, no, it's not going to help necessarily, but it's just, just a matter in terms of simulating the entire Earth. I mean, you, you, why, not, why not throw the weather in there? Um, and, and to see potentially how the bad weather would affect and interact with other aspects of the earth and, and culture and things. It's, yeah. For me, it's all, it's all about the interaction of all these data streams interacting and, and seeing patterns and trends that you, that you would have seen otherwise. My sense when I was reading about this is that this seems like a project that could be potentially useful, but it will probably turn out to be useful in ways that no one's anticipating. And the typical examples that people are thinking of, of how it will be useful, will turn out to be not terribly useful because we'll run into problems like chaos and you know, the inherent unpredictability of certain things. But, so I think that this will be useful in ways not yet anticipated, more than the kind of examples people are coming up with going into it. Yeah, I mean, this is, think about it. This is such a huge, immensely complicated beast. We're really just scratching the surface here. And we can't, we literally can, cannot pull this off right now. It's just way, way crazy too much. I mean, you would need like an army of, of exaflop supercomputers to even start thinking about this. <laughs> yeah. And, and around, then. Around, tw- around 2038, we should have those. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. When, and when then, does this become sentient? <laughs> well, that, see, that's interesting. Ah. That's interesting because some of these guys were saying that, as, as a last step, you know, not only do you need all the data, not only do you need to integrate all this data, not, o- not only do you need the, the computers to, to handle all this data, as a, as a final step, they kind of said that you need the simulator to understand itself, uh, you know, that what, you know, what the models mean, what all the data and, and models mean. And to me, that sounded like, well, you, it sounds like you need, you need an AI just to deal with, to, to understand this com- complexity. And if you're going to build an AI in the first place, I mean, build the AI and have, the AI create this thing. I mean, why, you know, here we need this new incredible invention in order to help with this other incredible invention. Well, just, it seemed like they just piled on. Oh, yeah, we'll need an AI too to handle this. Well, I would like to take a, play the devil's advocate here with, with this whole thing and say, I don't even know where to begin. It's like, okay, let's say we take a, a hundred million dollar video game that has an incredibly well thought out city, just a city by itself with yeah, like DC Universe. Yeah, or, or, you know, Grand Theft Auto 4 as an example. Like, things are happening in real time all over the city in, in the game. The idea being that, um, the, the software itself is going to have to be taking up so much bandwidth or so much processor that I don't even know if it's possible to do this with, with computers that we're going to have in, say, the next 10 years. Like, I don't see how they could run that big of a simulation. Well, it'll just scale up to whatever ho- hardware is available. You know, the resolution, right. the number of right. different things it can handle. It's, don't think of it as an all-or-none project. I mean, it's just going to be, you know, it, right. it'll start out modest. That's obviously not going to come close to, to simulating the real entire Earth. But it'll be a way of bringing together multiple, you know, uh, simulations of real-time things that are happening on the Earth. And it'll build and build and build over time. And also, I'm sure that there will also be aspects of it that will be in high, very high resolution and other aspects of it that will be in relatively low, you know, much yeah. lower resolution. So it wouldn't be all the same resolution, obviously. It'd be areas yeah. that are really defined. I mean, you know, it's hard to say this will come of anything, but trying to anticipate how this will work and how it will be used is kind of like trying to anticipate how the Internet is going to work and 
it's going right. to be used 30 years ago. You know, the kind of things that people were saying mostly were off mark at that time. Some were, some turned out to pan out, but you know, nobody would, nobody was anticipating YouTube and podcasting 30 years ago as natural outflows of the internet. Um, it, this is a project on that scale where, you know, it, it'll be with use that will realize what it can and cannot do. Bob, do you think that they're going to try to actually set up like a, a 3D concept in the simulator where um, they're going to map out different, you know, all the continents or, you know, basically make a representation physically of the Earth as well? Well, absolutely, yeah, just to have people interact with it and, and at least for the for the purely visual aspects of the simulation. Sure, why not? Look at look at Google Maps now and the way the way you can manipulate it um, and zoom in and go anywhere on the planet. It'll be just kind of similar to that, except in real time and uh, and just so beefed up that we can't even, really can't even imagine right right now. It's just going to be so so complicated. I wonder, guys. I wonder if they're going to actually have if they're going to add to the simulation a simulation of this system itself within it. Oh yeah, that kind that's, of a little, get a little rec- well. If they want to stay recursion true to the going, experiment, on. yeah, it's going to recursion. <laughs> yeah, it's like the mirrors in the barbershop. <laughs> Evan, <Exactly>. where <laughs> where'd you come <laughs> out with that? <laughs> and why the barbershop? I have, because that's where you find two mirrors opposite each where other. Where is it? What is the barbershop? Most often, okay. Bob. Check did the they, did they mention anything about the hardware they're starting the project with? No, they're really they're just looking for seed. Here it's an Xbox. They're just looking for seed money, and the, any mention of the the computer technology was more along the line of yeah, computers that don't exist right yet. I mean, we would yeah, we would need like I said, an army of of supercomputers beyond our best supercomputers even today. Would slow down all my Netflix movies that I'd be watching. Of course, the thing, the first application of this has to be pornography. Porn. Right? Yeah, no question. <laughs> well, yeah, what would they do, it always Steve? leads the way. Real time. <laughs> what are they going to do with that? Fully, fully rendered. Internet is for porn. <laughs> all right, <laughs> let's move on. Uh, 10%. It, during our Vancouver Live show, we actually spoke about the, the recent uh, research of a social psychologist, Daryl Bem, who did an interesting thing. He took some standard uh, social psychological research models and then just reversed them so that the individuals, the subjects in this study, were their reactions to future events were being studied rather than their reactions to past events. And it was a way of seeing if people can anticipate the future. So Bem is about to publish his research uh, in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. It's uh, nine separate experiments. And he's reporting positive results, mostly. And this has sparked a lot of controversy. Now, on our prior discussion, and when we've discussed Psy research in the past, essentially the bottom line is that the results of such research into things that essentially have no scientific plausibility, like reading minds or predicting the future, the results are always weak, that they don't meet the criteria for results that likely represent a real effect in the world, but rather just represent the noise of this kind of research. Um, I break it down into, into three criteria, that the results need to be statistically significant, that the effect size needs to also be significant. So it, it can't be a, a very tiny effect size that is essentially within the noise of uh, the kind of research that's being done. And it needs to be reproducible. If you know other researchers do the same protocol, they should get similar results. And, and so far, the 
you know, the parapsychological research over the last hundred years hasn't developed any research protocol that meets all three of those criteria at the same time, which is why scientists and skeptics remain skeptical of, of sign claims, not to mention the massive scientific implausibility of it all. The reason for this follow-up is because the uh, I want to talk about the editorial that is being published alongside the research. Uh, this is uh, a paper called Why Psychologists Must Change the Way They Analyze Their Data, the Case of Psy, by uh, some researchers from the University of Amsterdam. And uh, this is an excellent, excellent editorial uh, that really – breaks it down exactly what's wrong with the way Daryl Bem is presenting his research. Essentially what they're saying, which is, which is, you know, it's a very skeptical point, but it's very interesting to read uh, research scientists spelling out the skeptical position in technical detail without maybe even realizing overtly that they're doing so. Um, so, for example, they say, essentially, if you do research – into some phenomenon that appears to be impossible by everything that we know, you know, currently from physics and chemistry and biology or whatever, and you come up with positive results, that it's far more reasonable to assume that there is something flawed with your protocol than to think that you have completely unraveled our knowledge of the universe. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's essentially a way of saying extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. You know the, this notion that you know the, the more outlandish the claim, the the greater, the higher the threshold for evidence that we should accept. And and what they're pointing out is this disconnect between the the low level of evidence that Bem is presenting and the massive you know conclusions that he's drawing from it. Essentially, that what they say, which is, again, a very good point, again, I think it's one of these core skeptical points that, that we all need to, to, to understand, is that what this, what this research is really telling us is the limitations of our research methodology. That's the real lesson to, to draw from this. And that's the kind of thing that I, always hits me, you know, over and over again, like when I look at a homeopathy study or, again, or, you know, looking into the future or whatever it is. Um, that shows positive results, that that just tells us how flawed that research approach is or the, the potential for creating positive results even when there is no phenomenon. And since that has been demonstrated over and over again, it, it's supremely naive the next time somebody says they have positive results, they say, oh, that must mean this phenomenon is true, rather than saying that, no, it's another example of flawed research. So they go beyond just pointing that out to spelling out specifically what the flaws were in BEM's approach, which, again, I found interesting because they're essentially saying exactly what we've been saying over at Science-Based Medicine in terms of alternative medicine. That the, the different, And I get this question a lot. What's the difference between evidence-based medicine and science-based medicine? And the difference is exactly what these guys are talking about in terms of BEM's research. They're basically saying we need to take a science-based approach to his claims rather than a purely evidence-based approach. So let me, let me quote, the, give you the money quote where they, where they really go over their main points. They write, the most important flaws in BEM's experiment discussed below in detail are the following. One, confusion between exploratory and confirmatory results, like the difference between preliminary and definitive research. It's a good one. Two, here's a good one. 
insufficient attention to the fact that the probability of the data given the hypothesis does not equal the probability of the hypothesis given the data. And that Ooh. is the classic misinterpretation of the p-value. Steve, can you repeat that four times? Yeah. <laughs> yes. At least once. I'll paraphrase. So what it means is, say you have a p-value of 0.05. What does that really mean? That means that... It means I had 10 beers. Fi- five out of 100? <laughs> I got to go. It's a 5%, but it, people can interpret that as a 5% chance that the phenomenon is real. But it really means it's a 5% chance of the data being what it is, given that the hypothesis is false. Right? Ah, uh, right. Hoo-hoo. But that does not translate into the probability of the hypothesis being correct. But that's how right. people often interpret it. Right? So if there's a 5% p-value, that means it's 95% chance that this is – that the underlying hypothesis is true, that you know the null hypothesis should be rejected. And that's not correct. So what they recommend, again, is exactly what we recommended science-based medicine – which is the application of a test that overstates the evidence against the null hypothesis, an unfortunate tendency that is exacerbated as the number of participants grows large. He said that's the problem. The solution is to, instead of using um, just a p-value, but instead to use a Bayesian analysis. Now, Bayesian analysis is the probability of the hypothesis given the data. Right, that's what people really think they're doing when they're when they're misinterpreting the p-value. And how would um, that be? How would that be represented, the Bayesian? So, what you have to start with the prior probability. That's tricky to come up with because it, yeah, right. You know, you have yeah. to say t- t- taking all existing research. What's the probability that this is true? Zero. And then you say, now let's take the data, the new data. We'll plug that in and see how it changes. The probabilities. What's the post-test probability? I mean, it's, so that, it seems a bit a bit daunting to come up with something like that. Um, but it's really it sounds like to me just a way of making scientific the phrase we throw around all the time, which is that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. This would just right. be a way to sort of put a numerical yeah, value on that. Quantify it's that. It, it's yeah, also quantify. that you know you can't prove a, a hypothesis with one study. Uh, and it, it's also uh, a way of looking at all the evidence, you know, not just yeah. cherry picking the the new evidence or or one bit of evidence. So, for example, they say we reanalyze BEMS data using a default Bayesian t test and show that the evidence for psi is weak to non-existent, meaning that if you take any reasonable number of prior probability, and then you say now after this new set of evidence, what's how much does it affect that prior probability? It turns out not much. Um, so you still have a very tiny you know, probability that we can see into the future, right. for example. But who who comes up with the prior prior probability, and and you know who agree, you know does, who agrees with that? Um, is you know can somebody come up with a definitive prior probability that everyone would agree on? Well, the Probably thing is, you, but you can use at least reasonable order of magnitude estimates, right? So even if you're saying, all right, let's just say, let's just call it one percent which is probably hugely overestimating the prior probability. Mm-hmm. You can still calculate that this study doesn't affect it very much, that it still is just about 1%. So it, you could, what you could demonstrate mathematically is the minimal effects it has on a low prior probability, even if you can't give a very mm-hmm. specific you know, quantity of what that prior probability is. Which, again, is really mm-hmm. is another, it's a mathematical way of saying if you look at all the evidence and you, and you 
you, including the basic science evidence and previous studies, you know. So again, like if you you could also, it's it, you can it's a little bit easier when you apply it to if you restrict your analysis to say, all right, there have been a hundred studies of psi. Let's use the, all those hundred studies as the prior probability, and now we have one more study. So now right. what's the probability yeah. with the hundred and first study? And it, it turns out it doesn't affect it very much. It's kind of like a meta-analysis. Not quite. I mean, well, I mean. It, why well, not? in a way, it's, just, it's really just putting it sure. into context. And speaking as a layperson, right. I would find that tremendously convenient to be able to look at um, a study. Because it can be difficult sometimes when you're, um, as a layperson, to go into a field that you're unfamiliar with and you see a study and it's like, well, yeah, this this is pretty <laughs> convincing. Um, however, how does this fit into the larger body of research? You just don't exactly. know. Exactly. It would be mm-hmm. quite nice if that was like a standard and the p value doesn't tell you that right doesn't tell tell you it at all so it's it's just a way of mathematically showing how little uh, a single positive study has on a given hypothesis um depending on roughly where that hypothesis is along the spectrum from unlikely to likely you know if you have a hypothesis that actually has fair amount of evidence already for it and is a reasonable extrapolation of existing evidence and you think it's very highly likely then a confirmatory positive study may move you significantly towards you know a high probability of something being true Steve, are you saying that when Bem got these positive results, the first thing he should have done is gone back and see where he may had uh, had flaws in yeah, his he should have said approach. what did i do wrong what did Not, i do wrong we could right. see into the future <laughs> right. That 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 <laughs> those are two different that's, things. That's <laughs> that's what they're saying. And again, it's it's just having a healthy respect for the complexity and messiness of doing careful research. You know, there's a hundred things that can systematically bias a study like this. If you figure out half of them, you're a genius. But it means that the other you're gonna be missing things. And that's where rep, where replication comes in, right? The purpose of replication is to is the hope that all, the all, yeah, all of the all of these biases are going to average out. You're not going to figure all of them out ahead of time, but they'll tend to average out. Um, and at least you know it, you probably won't have the same systematic biases in different labs doing completely independently trying to do the same research. So if if a phenomenon is real, it should exist across you know different attempts at replicating it. Whereas if it's you know, just one researcher or one lab producing the results, um, you can't rule out that it's some, some you know, systematic flaw or bias in the, in the process that's not showing itself in the written report because you know, the written report is, just a, is a very imperfect and pale you know, shadow of all the messy things that are actually going on in a lab. Steve, so, isn't this observation yeah. that you're making about him one of the basic concepts or basic ideas – that uh, that defines a crank. Yes, <laughs> I think to, to the short answer is I think yeah. If you do a, do some experiments like this, get these really t- small effect sizes, uh, and you conclude that we are seeing into the future, you're a crank. Yeah, in my grab the handle and <laughs> right, in my opinion, you are a crank. In my opinion, that's that get that buys you basically that designation. Well. From Psy Research, we're going to move on to genetically engineered super chickens. Ooh. So do you guys know anything about flu viruses? I'm sure you do, Steve. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a little bit. 
I'm sure Mark Chrislip does too. Yeah. Well, well here, here's a few interesting uh, facts yeah. about a flu virus, and then I'll get into uh, some research that's been that's been done on chickens recently in regards to flu viruses. So, a flu virus carries its genes in eight groups of RNA, ribonucleic acid. In order for a virus to reproduce itself during an infection, each of the eight must bind to an RNA replicating enzyme that is also produced by the virus. So the the virus produces an enzyme that actually attaches to its own RNA. And this is how it replicates itself. So a researcher named Lawrence Tilley, who's at the University of Cambridge, has come up with a DNA that produces a short hairpin-shaped molecule of RNA in chickens, and this binds to the RNA replicating enzyme. So he came up with basically a structure that that connects itself to the enzyme that the flu virus makes in order to replicate itself. The super flu virus doesn't make it. It's a it's a host enzyme that the flu virus uses to reproduce itself. Yes, right? exactly. You're right. Yeah. So this prevents the flu virus from replicating itself, which is Damn. awesome, right? That's what I said, yeah. Bob. When I when I was reading this, I'm like, oh, there we go. It's all over. But no, it's not not that simple. So keep in mind, this was done in cultured chicken cells. But when they tested this in a living chicken, the virus was still able to reproduce itself. And they didn't know why. Huh. And they were like, oh, Trixie. we thought we had the Holy Grail, but they didn't have it. The virus was still able to kill the chickens that were modified, and they still shed the virus. So what what they ended up doing was, the interesting thing was that, when they the infected chickens were around non-infected chickens. Yeah, so so chickens, whether they were engineered or not, did not catch the flu from infected genetically engineered chickens. Yeah, so they ah. so they could they could oh, surmise so at that why? point that their manipulation of the RNA molecule had something to do with the ability for the infected genetically modified chicken to pass the flu to another healthy unmodified or modified chicken. Does that make sense? Yeah, it was blocking their yeah, the passing of the virus. Carry, carriers so not the, the passers. So the team noted that the exposed chickens didn't catch the flu at all, being that they didn't have any flu antibodies, which is the best way to test whether or not the flu was mm. actually introduced or not to the, to the chicken's body. Right. And they think that the hairpin RNA, which is the thing that they created, it actually interferes with small RNA molecules made by the flu virus that help regulate the level of infection. It's infectivity, yeah. So the physical shape of the RNA that they modified appears to be the 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 pin. The, well, they don't know. The they solution. don't. They're not sure. They don't know the mechanism. Yeah. So at this point, they just know that those engineered chickens are not passing on the virus, even though the virus is killing them and they're shedding the virus. The other birds around them are not getting exposed to the virus. So they, they, while they didn't shut off what they thought they were going to shut off, the ability of the virus to, to replicate itself at all, they did manage to block infectivity, but they don't know the mechanism. They're, they're hypothesizing that it's interfering with some other RNA protein uh, elements, some other RNA elements that the virus uses in order to be infective. Yeah, but that's just a hypothesis at this point. And what's cool is that they, they're actually commenting on um, what Steve just said. They're commenting on these other small RNA molecules that have recently been found. They didn't even know they existed, not until too long right. ago. So, you know, this is definitely mm. someone just, you know, coming up with some type of hypothesis about what could be happening. But the, the, the win here is that they did discover that the flu isn't being passed. 
And that really does block the transmission of the flu. Now, there's, there's a couple of things to be worried about here, like if we really dig in a little deeper. One of the problems could be that maybe they're um, – let's say that they're just weakening how, how catching the flu is. They're weakening the flu to some degree. And they're worried that, you know, they could be – they could be developing the ability for a super flu to be produced because they're creating an environment that they're not 100% sure of, like what the outcome is going to be. So they could be, this could right. lead to either severely weakening a flu to the point where it's ineffectual, or it could be creating an environment where the flu could really manifest in a horribly strong Man. way. So they're just going to... I don't want to die of super chicken flu. That's a terrible way to go. But, yeah. You know, you have to you have to hope and also, <laughs> you know, bank on the idea, Rebecca, that they're doing this in a controlled place. You know, they're being very cautious and careful about what they do. There isn't any, you know, weird uh, people cu- coming in and out of the test facility. You know, they have to... You know what? I've watched enough movies to know that that is not true. Yeah, well, once the monkey gets the virus and it throws up on one of the researchers... On Robert De Niro or whoever. Yeah, don't let that done. researcher's girlfriend bring the guy lunch and leave the facility. They're, yeah, murder them all immediately. <laughs> just burn the room. Wait, what about... What, best case scenario, though, how do you... Can you inoculate a person or would you have to actually adjust the virus itself in order to make this, to scale this up? Well, this, this virus does not, uh, is not very infectious towards people anyway. This is the H5N1. This is the bird flu virus. It, you, people have caught it, but only people who like raise chickens. You know, it's not out in, it, there's no human to human transfer. Uh, this remember this was the fear a year or so or two ago before H one N one. This was like the bird yeah. flu is coming and it kill everybody, but it hasn't it hasn't right. mutated to become you know human to human infectious. It's only minimally bird to human infectious. So this is a good virus to do research on, and, again, and they're not altering the virus; they're altering the, chicken, the chickens, the actual chickens. The, yeah, the, the the worry would be that the virus evolves a way around. This uh, this mutated chicken, and that gives it a super infectivity. Uh, that seems to make sense that it would do that. That's how things have happened in yeah, nature for a depends, long time. It depends on what the potential is. Well, they don't understand enough about it yet. So uh, hopefully there's no plans to you know like, for any widespread implementation of this mut- you know, mutated chicken until they understand better what is going on. So this will be an interesting research avenue that may lead to other applications, for example, if we learn – you know how the engineered chickens are blocking infectivity that might lead to a vaccine, for example, uh, a universal flu vaccine, or or just beefing up existing vaccines, uh, just because of the, the better understanding of how the virus it becomes infectious. You know, and Evan is right so, about the uh, maximizing the transmission of a disease is the main selection pressure. So, in other words, how um, how well yeah. a disease gets transferred from organism to organism is actually what makes the flu strong or weak. So if it is going to evolve, so if some heavy evolving takes place or mutations start to take place, it's going to it's going to go in one direction or the other, right? It's going to either become stronger or weaker. No one can say this. Well, you know what I mean. <laughs> if any changes take, if any significant one of those changes three, take, <laughs> <laughs> definitely we got to narrow down to one of those three. Like that came out the wrong way, but I, Nature I hope you got finds it. No, I think what you're saying is that yeah, I mean, there's a lot of selective pressure to become more infectious. Yes, Thanks, Steve. So nature finds a way. Nature That's finds topic. a way. Unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's go from chickens to mammoths. Right. A little update on 
The whole cloning of the we mammoth. We could have our own really up. boring Jurassic Park. What is this, cloning? As was reported in the Telegraph just recently. <laughs> and the headline reads, The mammoth could be reborn the in mammoth four coming. years. Four years. <laughs> the woolly mammoth. Four years. We're four years from woolly mammoth I, rides I at the kitty park. You would. <laughs> really? <laughs> Oh my god, did you actually da da da? I don't care. Yes, I'd I'd love to see a mammoth. Thanks to a breakthrough in cloning technology. I'd love to eat a mammoth. Uh, That is just not right. (laughs) So, what scientists are proposing to do? What they propose is. Well, it seems pretty straightforward, and and I wouldn't call it basic, but it seems pretty. like a reasonable uh, approach to uh, to this possible problem. They take the cell nuclei from the skin or muscle of the mammoth and they insert it into the egg of an African elephant. All right. They let that egg live in the elephant for a couple of years, about two years or so. And then the egg, get, the egg gets inseminated and the 600-day gestation period occurs and supposedly plop out will come the mammoth yeah so it's you know it's a pretty pretty straightforward concept um now i get the main problem um as to why they haven't been able to achieve this before is that it's extremely difficult to get cell nuclei uh from the skin or muscle of the mammoth and um yeah only recently have they worked have they come up with certain technology in order to effectively do it um, in which they've already tested it successfully on mice that have been frozen for 16 years, right? Because this woolly mammoth tissue has been has been in, in frozen preservation for so long, for a very long time. And in past techniques, all, they've not been able to get a clean, uh, clean cell nuclei. Um, but now they've been able to do it in mice. So if you could do it in mice, then there should be no reason why you couldn't do it with, say, a mammoth. But the new bit here is not so much the cloning technique that you described. It's that they figured some other techniques, which the article actually doesn't go into in technical detail, in order to make the frozen cells more viable. That's always been a limiting factor is the damage that was been done to the DNA, I guess, from being frozen for so long. And with their new techniques, they said they were able to clone a mouse from the, frozen, from the cells of a mouse that was frozen for 16 years. The question is, will that 16-year um, experiment extrapolate to the thousands Th- of years thousands, yeah, right. that um, we need in, in order to do it successfully with mammoth cells? So we don't know. That's a big question. Well, what about my question. future? What about my yeah, my future frozen friends, Jay and Bob, may have something to say about that. I mean, isn't isn't that kind of the part of the concept of, of cryogenics? Is that the tissue should be able to last uh, so long in frozen? No, not so much in a frozen medium. Not so much with, with cryonics and people. The idea is that uh, if you can infer the original state of uh, of of the person of the, of the mind, specifically the brain, if you can infer it, so there could be a lot of damage. There could be theoretically a lot of damage to to the brain. Yeah, they're banking on but, future technology. They're not. It's exactly, exactly. But, but the key, though, is to be able to infer uh, the working state of the, of, the material, of the biological tissue, and that's the key. If you can't infer the prior state, then, then you game over. There's nothing you could do. Well, maybe we can at least still impregnate someone with a tiny Bob or Jay. Yeah, we could clone you in the future, future even if we can't resurrect you in the future. That'd Who cares? Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. So what? Well, well, we could make like a mammoth Bob hybrid. 
A bobbit. Yeah, but I'll never see it. A, bo- <laughs> a mammoth. Yeah, but we would. It'd Mam- be amazing. Mammoth. You want to make a hybrid of Bob? <laughs> and a, a mammoth. What do you, I don't know. <laughs> California sends me Fantastic. So this is one of those things, the cloning of the mammoth, that I feel like has been dangled in front of me for years. I know. Right. And it also, okay, they, they made some kind of breakthrough. They did it with the 16-year frozen mouse. That's great. I hope that they're right. The whole we'll have baby mammoths walking around in four years bit is, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's like we're going to have the flying car in five years and the jetpack and all that stuff. It's, it, hey, the jetpack is coming. Yeah. I saw it. I saw a picture, <laughs> yeah. No. Rebecca wore one. I wore it. But uh, you know what I'm talking about. It's, uh, it's one of those things. I'm just saying, have hope. The jetpack is coming. Have hope <laughs> let's, for the mammoth. Let's put it this way, right, Rebecca? You're not flying to my house. Yeah, you're not, you know what? In 10 pack. years, this is my prediction. In 10 years, there will be baby mammoths with jetpacks. <laughs> Commuting to work. Yeah. Their little backs. <laughs> it's gonna be I bet you the Earth simulator won't see that coming. <laughs> 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 that's that's going to be the first thing that happens. They're going to flip on the Earth simulator. And be like, yeah, imagine it says that. It predicts <laughs> <laughs> That's coming. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> just just like a mammoth with a jetpack. Mammoths with jetpacks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to who's that noisy. It is time for who's that noisy. Last week's noisy. Here we go. All right, you get the idea. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's a cat. <laughs> you know how many people got that right? Everybody watches cat videos, Evan. You can't do cats. Uh, cat cat videos are extremely popular on the internet. I, now, but when I first heard that, see, I thought it, I was close. I thought it was a cat lady, not an actual cat. cat oh, like, like right, right, like <laughs> like a demented old street woman. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but why would Evan be playing a demented old street woman? I, I'm just <laughs> why saying. Why would he be playing a cat? It's <laughs> That's what it sounded like. Well, for, for the three people who hadn't heard that before, it is funny, and it, it is, is kind of unique. I don't like it, though, because I feel like there must be something wrong with the cat. Cats don't normally make that noise. No, there's a certain kind of cat that does that, I think. Yeah, the one cat, oh, it's cat means heat. it's upset. Yeah, one that's looking for some. The range of vocalizations that cats do is actually pretty extreme. Yes, I, and that, that sound is the sound of a cat that's upset in some way. Have you guys so, ever heard of Nom Or possessed. Or possessed. Yes, could be obsessed. Uh, possessed. What See, was that, Jay? Jay? Did, did you guys ever hear Nom Nom Cat? No. Nom 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 <laughs> You gotta hear this. Yeah. You gotta hear this. Cat. Hold on. Do you, have, do you have it? Okay. <laughs> I've heard... I've heard every cat. <laughs> That's My Jake. cat sounds like a tribble. He makes one sound that's just like a tribble. Hold on. This is worth this is definitely worth it. Nom 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 nom. <laughs> it sounds like he's eating it's something. really funny too. though. He yeah, is man. eating. That's what he, makes it funny. Yeah, he's eating. He's actually eating Those noises come out of his mouth every time he licks. Although that kind of makes me sad, too, because I feel like there must be something wrong with him as well. I don't know. I just, I like cats too much. Well, you know, with so many people with cats and computers, we're bound to get a lot of recording on the internet of weird cat sounds. Well, okay. (laughs) So, cats do have a wide range of noises and stuff, I suppose. This was sent in by listener Derek Brewington from North Carolina who recorded his own cat making these noises. 
Cool. Ah. This was not any internet sensation with two million hits or anything like that. This was something. Wasn't key. Tabby the talking cat? No, it was not. Uh, so, did anybody guess that this was Derek's cat? Uh, no. However, the uh, first one to suggest that this was a cat was our dear friend from the message boards, Chew. Thanks, Chew. Or Chewy, as we like to call him. Yeah, that's right. Well done. Oh, <laughs> that is the ugliest avatar picture. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. What's oh up with that avatar? God, that was horrible, know. Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> what? No, I thought that was pretty good. That terrible. What, that Chewy? <laughs> yeah, that was my Chewy impression. Evan, tell us what you got for this week. Okay, here we go. This week's... Who's that noisy? In the last few months, I've become religious. I've started to believe in God and creationism and intelligent design. And the reason that I now believe in God and creationism and intelligent design is because of Professor Richard Dawkins. That's all you get. All right. Good luck, everyone. Thanks, Evan. Well, let's try to squeeze in a couple of emails. The first one comes from Tom Boyd from Denver, Colorado. Hey, Tom, do you know Phil Plate? And he writes, hello, SGU. <laughs> Some praise, praise, praise. I'm Steve, working. Not all white people know each other. That's true, but all nerds <laughs> know each other, though, right? <laughs> I'm working in the renewable energy industry now, so once in a while I get a Kool Aid chugging friend sending me links and info on what usually turns out to be your average perpetual motion free energy machine. This link is slightly different. Yes, this guy has all the credentials necessary for permanent residency in. Cookville. Actually, he wrote Cookville, but I'm assuming he means Cookville, USA. But there does appear to be an actual scientific effect going on here, so I thought you could set me straight on what I'm seeing. And he links to greenecoclub.com slash Tesla. So you know you're in for some <laughs> some oh, yeah. solid science here. Cause, now, we occasionally review crank websites on the SGU, but they Crank websites do fall into a few different categories, or there are different flavors of cranks, if you will. There is, for example, the Time Cube, which is, I would say, the quintessential uh, crank that is the flavor of someone who is so seriously mentally ill, they're just barely able to use the internet. Yeah, the mm-hmm. kind we hesitate to even mock because yeah. it's obviously got serious problems. Right, there's there are cer- someone who's reality challenged. Is this yeah. the people, yeah. oh, Steve? Is this the people with websites that flash and have different colors? And, yeah, yeah, and go on yeah. forever. Yeah, this guy's website is not in that category. Now, no. in, my, in my opinion, this is a one. This is one long snake oil sales pitch. Absolutely. Sure. The purpose of this is to get you to buy his book, and it's. It's all intended to to uh, make you think that there's some possibility that you know this guy's product, you know, has some legitimacy to it. And Steve, this guy is pretty thorough. Did you actually do a Google search on his name? No. What did you come up with? I I just came up with an unending supply of different websites, kind of doing similar types of things. I could not find anything other than this guy. Or a website just basically linking to his page or, or trying to sell his stuff. He's, it's like he made 30 websites and all with similar things so that no matter if you search for his name, it's all you find. You can't find anything else. So he, he has 30 different snake oil projects that he's selling? Is he just hoping no, it's, that something hits? No, it's all it, it a lot all of it. The ones, it, yeah, all selling like his book in 
different ways, kind of. I see. You know? So it's like, wow, I couldn't find anything else. I could find nothing else. Sounds like a tactic that uses to divert oh, yeah, anyone it a, from... It was effective. I got, bored, I got bored with it and gave up. Yeah. Well, this guy's uh, Lewis Holtman. Uh, I like how he has this letter to the green do-it-yourselfer, and it has the date, Tuesday, 9.26 a.m. Oh, God. Neither, neither of those <laughs> things are dates. You know, Tuesday's a day of the week. Nine twenty six is a time. That's straight out of The Shining. Yeah, I know it right. is. <laughs> Wednesday. Awesome. I guess he wants to make it always seem current, you know, because there's no, it's not dated in any way. Well, he sure tricked us. <laughs> he writes. No, no, it's funny that you say dates because a lot of the websites I went to had dates on them that were of. Only from the past few months, nothing earlier than that. So yeah. he changed, he'd be faking that as he well. He changes yeah. it every once in a while, yeah. So at the very top in bright red letters, very large font, Nikola Tesla's hidden invention stands ready to bankrupt the power company after 109 years with nearly unlimited free electricity straight to your home within the next two days. You see, that's when I click the little X. The red <laughs> <Right>. X. <laughs> but when, when I, you do when that, Evan, <laughs> when you do that, yep. you get a... This is how, another way that you know that this is a, a sales con. You get a little pop-up window that says, are you sure you want to navigate away from this page? Oh, I you can get that. a special discount if you hit OK to continue. I thought only porn sites did that. Right, Not exactly. that I would know. <laughs> so it's all one huge conspiracy theory about the power companies, right? As if they could keep an invention that would transform civilization out of the hands of the entire world over the last 50 years. It's also written from a completely like unapologetic American point of view mm-hmm. as if we're the only country in the world, right? Like what the Chinese wouldn't have figured out that they could have unlimited free energy and they care about our power companies why? Exactly. Yeah, that's good. I didn't think of that. Yeah. Yeah, it's well it's, you, know, you can't think about it for more than 2 seconds without seeing how ridiculous it is. Nikola Tesla, the only man smarter than Einstein. So a lot of it, you know, <laughs> trades on, Fact. yeah, trades on, just the like the the pseudo celeb scientific celebrity of Nikola yeah. Tesla. And also, it's funny he was saying how you know just how bright and how knowledgeable he wa- he was, and yeah. and he and he might have been very knowledgeable about this specific area, you know, a century ago. But you know, in that time, there's a lot of even you know semi only partially smart people know a lot more than Tesla did because just because all you know just because of all the research that's gone on in the past century you know even people that aren't smart know so much more than he ever did so yeah. it's not like you know you can't I don't know oh, it's just a ridiculous yeah. argument from authority here's one passage that's priceless I have to read this if there's so much power hitting the earth why hasn't some scientist figured this out yet well they have scientists know exactly what is going on in the earth's ionosphere I think he missed, he writes ionosphere I think he means ionosphere But there's a massive complication that rears its ugly head. Think about this. Scientists researching power systems work for power companies. (gasps) Power companies aren't going to research anything that will run them out of business. Okay, well, that explains all the science complications (laughs) that come up. So here's the guy's basic – I wouldn't even call it a theory. Here's his basic con. Here's his Neil Adams His pitch. His Neil Adams pitch. Although I think Neil Adams is a legitimate crank. This guy, you know. Yeah, Neil actually believes what he's saying. (laughs) That he says the sun has a massive positive charge. The earth has a negative charge. And the two together are like a battery. And this little machine that you can build yourself from his – if you buy his book and you send you the instructions, you can build this little machine that will tap into the sun's battery and just start producing limitless energy. 
That's so obvious wow. now that yeah. you say it. I can't believe I didn't think of it before. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's just obvious. The, and he even gets his basic facts wrong. You well, know, like, 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 like he cares. <laughs> I, I know, but I mean, t- just this one right here really kind of irked me. He's talking about the Earth a couple hundred million miles away. Oops. A couple hundred, really? <laughs> Try 92. Like, no. Yeah, it's oh like, wow, this, this, yeah. it's just a basic thing. I read that too, and I'm like, that's it's wrong and awkward. Did he mean a couple, a hundred million miles away, or you know what I mean? <laughs> Who, I'm I don't trying know. to make excuses for whatever. This guy's website is so bad that you're sounding stupid, Steve. <laughs> well, I'm just I'm trying to make I don't know. I'm trying to make sense of that one sentence, but yeah, it's uh, but but let's get back to his claim that the sun has a huge positive charge. In fact, you know, Bob and I both investigated this. And I think there's two different opinions here uh, that the sun is basically basically electrically neutral. But I also have read papers that suggest that there's evidence to support the conclusion that the sun has a a massive negative net negative charge. So if anything, what if you rub a helium balloon on it? <laughs> if anything, it's the opposite of what he's saying. Yeah. Well, if you look if you look at it from the point of view of the solar wind in terms of the protons and the electrons. Uh, which make up the solar wind, it's got a, it's got a neutral charge because they just bounce right. each other out. Right. But the sun being negative, you know, 93 million miles away is irrelevant. <laughs> doesn't mean it's a battery we can plug into. Right. And the earth isn't, what did he say, negative? The earth? Yeah. Is, yeah. He says it's a negative charge. Which is not true. I mean, it's basically yeah. on average is out to a neutral charge. Neutral, yeah. Right. Yeah. So other than that, he was right on the ball. <laughs> 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 Uh, you know, this guy, that might not even be the guy. You know what I mean? The right, guy the picture? doesn't even exist. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a young, hip-looking guy. You're right. That probably is not him, but whatever. The guy doesn't probably even exist. Um, you think a ghost made that site? <laughs> <laughs> I love the little schematic here. It's like, what is going on in this schematic of the device? He says, Tesla's simple generator gathers radiant energy and turns it into usable free energy at home. Yes, also called a photovoltaic cell. <laughs> oh, boy. That would work. Yeah. Yeah. We can actually gather energy from the sun. <laughs> and use this, it. Right, right. This exists. Right. Uh, so, yeah, this is a con job. Basically, yeah, he's definitely not a crank. He's just totally trying to milk people. It's it's pretty cynical, you know. Again, you you could see like somebody who themselves is pretty skeptical um, coming up with this. You know, it's like if if, if skeptic tried to create a con, let's use Tesla and conspiracy theories and you know some compelling sounding pseudoscience. Well, I would have got. I think we would have got the basic facts a little more accurate. But yeah, yeah, I think you're right. We would have you. We would have done a far better job than this guy did. But let's prove it. You could see (laughs) (laughs) and get and get rich. (laughs) Careful ish. This big pharma stuff's not working out for us. Yeah, right. right. (laughs) Right. Mature, Bob. (laughs) All right. Well, let's go on. Uh, One more quick one. Uh, This one's for you, Jay. This one comes from Philippe Campello in Belo Horizonte, Brazil. And Philippe writes, or is it Felipe? Uh, Sharks swimming on streets of flooded Australia. Jay will certainly love this one. And he gives a link to an article. And then he concludes, love the show, by the way. So this is a an article about bull sharks swimming down the streets of Ipswich. That is terrifying. Jay, what do you think about that? 
<laughs> well, first of all, the first thing I thought of, all right, I think this is proof that God exists. <laughs> and hates you. <laughs> because if you didn't know, you know, bull sharks are dangerous, right? They're mm-hmm. yes, yes, they are dangerous. Floods are dangerous, right? Flooding is dangerous. People die during floods. Go on. Imagine you're a flood victim, Mm -hmm. right? A living flood victim. You're someone that suffered through a flood. You survived. You're (laughs) clinging to something as the waters come by you. A bull shark literally (laughs) swims past you in your front, your own front yard. <laughs> where, where kids should be playing baseball, a shark Cricket. is terrorizing. Cricket, not baseball. <laughs> shark. And they're not sharks; they're shacks. Shacks. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, this is what I'm talking to you guys about, and you guys don't seem to be listening. No, Jay, I'm. This is like my worst nightmare combined with yours because I literally have a lot of nightmares about tsunamis and floods all the uh-huh. time, and yeah. So this this taps into. A very deep fear of You've got well. your nightmare in my catastrophe. But Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca yes, we have the Reese's peanut butter cup of news stories here. A scant what? Two, three, maybe four shows ago, um, we were talking and I said something about like, you, you were like, you were trying to scare me saying. I was mocking a, you, yes, yeah, because it a, is a funny. a water spout with sharks in it and I'm like, yes. man, it's chasing me down an alleyway. Yes. I mean, the only thing left that needed to take place in this situation was that a tornado came down, sucked up the water <laughs> with up. the sharks in it, and there you are. You're in your front yard. A water spout. Carried water it spout to Connecticut. With sharks coming at you. <laughs> it's really, it's not as insane as it sounds, right? It actually could happen. It could happen, yeah. It could happen. <laughs> so nobody's safe is what you're saying. No. Oh. But sadly, I looked through all 69 of these pictures or whatever. It wasn't one picture of a shark. Yeah, I mean, I saw the other thing is this is all based upon eyewitness accounts. I couldn't find a compelling picture of an actual shark swimming down the river. If anyone has one, let me know. If the, the locals let us know if they think this story is true or not. I mean, here's like the article that uh, the emailer linked to says things like, State member for Bundamba, Joanne Miller, also backed Mr. Bateman's bull shark sighting. Steve wouldn't lie about something like that. He's very well known in the community. Okay. So that's yeah. that's the level of information that's we're going good. on is eyewitness testimony from people who wouldn't lie. <laughs> yeah, but maybe he mis you know he misinterpreted what he saw. Oh, maybe it's a ter- maybe it's a colloquialism, like you say, bull shark, like bullshit. And they're just it does mistaking. make sense, though. Like, <laughs> I mean, come on. It's it's not it's not out of the ordinary, though. I mean, you can because bull sharks are very um, particular types of sharks that that swim in often rivers. swim in shallow yeah. waters and can tolerate fresh water. Yeah. Um, no, there's so, plausibility there because they were yeah. sighted in the river that's flooding its banks. Blah blah blah. So that yes, mm-hmm. it's not yeah, that it's crazy. Feasible. It's feasible. But it's I feasible. was hoping for a little bit better information at the secondhand eyewitness testimony, but. I don't think I w- a lot of people are scuba diving right now in the flooded waters. Well, how about a shark fin sticking out of the water? Is that too yeah, much to ask for? I was disgusted. I was disgusted. <laughs> I, you know, I I read a headline. I read a headline about sharks in front yards during the flood. All right, it's a terrible disaster. But you go to the website, you expect to see at least a fin coming up. I you saw want to nothing. See a shark right? trapped in someone's car, or yeah, or just, a shark I, getting stuck somewhere. You know, I or, left the website in disgust. <laughs> False error. So the locals need to let us know what they think about this story, if it's legit or not. Because what we're getting, the locals have no internet access or being hunted by sharks right now. They've got better things to do. Well, that's true. Than, I mean, yeah, the, the, there is a my big final <laughs> summation. <laughs> Plausibility one, 
Photograph, zero. Yeah. All right, thanks, Jay. Well, let's move on to science fiction. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then I challenge my expert skeptics to sniff out the fake. Are you guys ready for this week? Bolsheviks. Yes, we are. Yep. Okay. Here we go. Item number one. A recent study shows for the first time Americans have a greater negative than positive attitude towards science. Item number two. A Spanish study finds that tractor rollovers are the number one cause of farm-related deaths. And item number three, in two different studies, researchers find that antioxidants may decrease female fertility while increasing male fertility. Uh, Bob, go first. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, someone's got to put together all the noises Bob makes when it's his turn for science fiction. Put that into a loop. That's okay, awesome. Won't, won't be nearly as fun as Jay's. Um, It'll be close. Okay. For the first time, Americans have a greater negative than positive attitude towards science. At the first time, it seems to me that it would have been that way for a long time. Um, so why would it be a greater negative value now? I don't know. I know why. Good. Okay. Spanish study, tractor rollovers. My, my first thought was that, well, I mean, if you're farming and you have a tractor, isn't it generally pretty flat ground? But I don't know, maybe in, Sp- in Spain – if they did this, if they even carried this out in Spain, maybe it's not quite as flat as when I imagine like the Midwest. Hmm. Man, I got nothing here. Number one cause of farm-related deaths. Yeah, I mean, I could see that as a as being up there on the list. Um, let's see. Okay, let's go to let's go to the last one here. Two different studies: antioxidants may decrease female fertility while increasing male fertility. Hmm. I mean, yeah, I just have – I'm just so down on antioxidants. They, I mean, they were just so hyped for so long. And the last research that I read was that antioxidants really don't do squat. Roll your three-sided dice. No, Rebecca, you roll a D6 and divide by two. <laughs> or you just go to r- randomnumbergenerator.com. <laughs> You're not helping, kids. Um, I'll, I'll, go, I'll just go with the, um, the science greater negative attitude. I don't know. <laughs> okay. All right, Jay. Let me show you how it's done, Bob, right? Yeah, go ahead. A recent study shows for the first time Americans have a greater negative than positive attitude towards science. Of course that's true. I don't know if this is the first study, but of course Americans have a greater negative than positive attitude towards science. That's why everyone's a freaking idiot today. <laughs> Second one. Spanish study finds that tractor rollovers are the number one cause of farm-related deaths. This one is obviously bullshit because everybody knows the number one farm-related death is b- death by freaking pigs. Right? You've right, been watching Evan? too much lock stock, too smoking. Yeah. That's, that's why you snatch. have to eat them. You have to eat snatch. them before they eat you, right? I, I find it very hard to believe that people die from their tractors. Die. I do. I don't agree with that. So I'm going to move on. In two different studies, researchers find that antioxidants may decrease female fertility while increasing male fertility. I Sure. This is the first time, I'm, and I'm happy to hear it, that antioxidants are actually doing something bad and not good. <laughs> So I'm going to go with number two as the fake. The tractor one is completely bullshit. Okay, Rebecca? I, like Bob, am in the coin flipping mood because none of these sound quite familiar to me. The only one that I think is probably right is 
the one that Jay just said is wrong. <laughs> uh, growing up in farm territory of South Jersey, I I know people who have had <laughs> tractors roll over on them. Um, City. I'm not sure if it would be... The only thing is, like, I could see it being the number one cause of farm-related injuries. Um, but, yeah, I guess of deaths, like, sure, heavy machinery, it's very dangerous. Pigs. And why would it be pigs? It doesn't make sense. Just trust me. Weirdo. Um, so I think that one's true. I don't know. And, yeah, I think that antioxidants could have different effects on fertility depending upon the sexes that... I guess, with my limited knowledge of what antioxidants do to the body, makes sense. So that leaves us with America's having a greater negative than positive attitude towards science for the first time. I agree with Bob. The first time bit sounds fishy to me, so I'm saying that that one's fiction. Okay, Evan? Uh, I think the one about Americans having a greater, greater negative than positive attitude towards science is correct. I think that one is true. And I think mainly the global warming quote-unquote debate is pro- possibly to blame uh, for that or has a, perhaps the biggest influence of all these science stories going on in our culture today. Um, I think the tractor rollovers being the number one cause of farm-related deaths, I'm having a hard time believing that one because we all know that what was it? Pigs, Jay? Is that what it is? Pigs? I was going to yes, get. Sir. I was going to say t- people getting kicked in the heads by donkeys and horses and stuff. I mean, you know, those are the, those. Those are some deadly incidents. I don't, so tractor rollovers. I'm not sure. Therefore, I think the tractor rollovers is the fiction. All right. So you guys are split between one and two. So let's start with number three in two different studies. Researchers find that antioxidants may decrease female fertility while increasing male fertility, and this one is science. It's science times two. It's actually two completely different and unrelated studies that I just happened to find close to each other. Um, So I decided to combine them into one item. I think it's the first time I've done that. I think it is, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So in one study, research essentially just did a a literature review uh, and found that there is evidence that that men who are taking antioxidant supplements um, are more likely to get their partners pregnant that there may be an uh, increase in male fertility associated with taking it. Uh, in a separate study, this one was done in mice. They found that uh, mice, female mice fed antioxidants, like vitamin C and E, for example, uh, had a dramatic decrease in ovulation. Hmm. And that this is yeah, like, really, really significant. I guess you could call this one of mice and men. Right. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Here we Don't go. laugh at that. It's only going to encourage him. <laughs> right. So that this, you know, whether, whether this applies to to humans or not is not clear. Obviously, it was a mouse study, but if, if true, this could be having a negative impact on for, on female fertility. Whatever. I just got all the evidence I need to start megadosing on antioxidants. <laughs> <laughs> you go, girl. Oh, all right. Let's. I guess we'll just continue in reverse order. Uh, let's go to number two. A Spanish study finds that tractor rollovers are the number one cause of farm-related deaths. Uh, Jay and Evan, you think this one is the fiction, and this one is science. Ah. Oh. High five, Bob. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, farming rollovers. Uh, tractor rollovers. Uh, wow. Yeah. Wow, Steve. They, we th- that makes sense. This was, this, we, we've known this one. It's pigs. It's real. <laughs> Why do you think it's pigs? Where did they come from? It's true. 
What is that? That's not Maybe true, because honestly. it's a Spanish study, Jay. Maybe. No, because they don't have pigs in Spain, Jay. All right. Well, we'll have to see. That's, that's not true. Spain. Making that up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this is a study that found that uh, yeah, the, the number of uh, farm-related deaths, the the single greatest cause was due to tractor rollovers. Guess not many people die on the farm in Spain. That's good. Yeah, yeah it's pretty safe. And they they talk about the fact that they um, they passed a law that track that new tractors you know being sold on the market have to contain essentially a roll cage, right? You need a cage that the person sits in, and that since that law was put into place, it actually saved a lot of lives. That there have only been three deaths. Relating to tractors that had the that have the cages that people sit in, all the other tractor-related deaths are in the older style tractors that are open. You know, where you're basically just sitting on top of the tractor. So if it rolls over, it's going to crush you. Most of the deaths also occurred in older people and in teenagers and young people. One of my I, in high sure school, one of my friends uh, had a tractor rollover on him. Yeah, how did he do? Mm-hmm. He lived, but I think he had to have his arm amputated. Yeah. Jeez. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's I guess they're inherently not the most stable pieces of machinery. Yeah, it's very they're dangerous. They're top-heavy, I guess. I crashed a tractor. Oh, I remember that story, Jay. Proud of you. Were you wow. drunk? I, no, I was... I told it. I was... I, my friend... Uh, oh, led, yeah, you were going down the hill on it, right? And it yeah, I was going down this incredibly <laughs> steep hill on the road. <laughs> and. You know, a tractor, the, the tr- uh-huh. a tractor cannot handle speeds above, say, 25 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. And I, the tractor, like, it started swerving, and then it just <laughs> tipped over and started rolling like a car in a movie, and I, I shot off of it. Oh, my God. You're Jay, a dumbass. you could have died. Sure. Uh, yeah, you could have. Yeah, if you were So, Jay, Spain, you almost trouble. died in a tractor rollover, and yet you were, you were skeptical <laughs> of that. Yeah, and you were like, oh, they're not that dangerous. Yeah, but I didn't tell you the second half of the story, Steve. I landed on a pig, and the pig turned to me and said, I almost killed you. <laughs> <laughs> and, of so course, that was, a, that was a tractor we had borrowed from our friends down the road. It wasn't even our tractor. Oh, well, then it's okay. Right. That was in Jay's wild days. Before he settled yeah, down. His, I was a wild tractor driving like, days. <laughs> oh, Jay, when you were 38. <laughs> All right. Which means that a recent study shows for the first time Americans have a greater negative than positive attitude towards science is entirely fiction. Yes. Uh, I did look up uh, this. The article I was so obvious of had nothing to do with attitude. Good job, coin flippers. <laughs> towards science. Actually, in a recent, I did look up a 2009 Pew Research Center poll, which found that the public is still 84%, you know, mostly positive towards the effect right. of, of science on society. Wow. That scientists still rank very high in the list of professions that contribute a lot to society's well-being. 70% agree with That's that. That's reassuring. Yeah, so it, attitudes towards scientists are still very, very positive. In the abstract. Yes. Once yes. you start getting into well, specifics. Yes. <laughs> Right. Not now, quite so friendly, but, maybe. but I was inspired by an interesting study that looked at surveys in general and found that what they report is a common flaw in the way many surveys are done regarding public opinions on science. Uh, what they essentially did was they compared single question surveys to surveys that include the broad questions, but then also probe the details. Mm. And then they compare the details to how they match the broader question. So, for example, 
So, for example, they they did. So, here are two st- surveys they did. They asked people about uh, nanotechnology and, and a separate one on biofuels, and they essentially asked, "Do the potential benefits outweigh the risks of nanotechnology or of biofuels?" Yeah. Uh-huh. Then <laughs> we know, Bob. We know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then they. So, in, in one survey, that's all they did was they just asked. Those, that question, that overarching question, they call it. Then in, in the comparison survey, they also asked a bunch of, of detailed sub-questions to probe for specifics. And what they found was that even when people said, you know, the, their overarching answer was that it was more risk than benefit, when they answered the individual questions, they actually were much more positive. And it adds up to uh, the opposite conclusion. If you sort of add up their individual answers, they seem more positive than negative. So it didn't it didn't match their overarching answer. So the conclusion of this study was that that single question surveys are very problematic, and that if you really want to get interpretable results, you need to ask multiple questions that probe p- people's beliefs around that topic. And that, you know, whatever, for various reasons, people may give very misleading or inconsistent answers to just the, the, the one big, simple, overarching question. Uh, so good job, Bob and Rebecca. Thank you. Hey. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, Steve, do you have a quote? No, I don't, Jay, but you do. Go ahead, read it. I do. I have one. <laughs> this is a quote sent in by Lydia Gurevich. Gurevich? Gurevich. From Louisville, Louisville, <laughs> Kentucky. Louisville. I'm Louisville. sure she appreciates oh you gosh. butchering both her oh, name yeah. and, and her name city name. Her Yeah, <laughs> Lydia Gurevich from Louisville, from Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky. Kentucky. Uh, <laughs> the tough mind is sharp and penetrating, breaking through the crust of legends and myths, and sifting the true from the false. Rarely do we find men who willingly engage in hard, solid thinking. There is an almost universal quest for easy answers and half-baked solutions. Nothing pains some people more than having to think. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Wow. <sighs> nice. I wouldn't nice. have guessed that. MLK. Oh, it was just MLK Day, it's so good. I guess that's appropriate. Yeah. 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 Well done, finding something topical. Bob, I, I actually heard you on a different podcast this week. That's yeah, not this- allowed. <laughs> Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Uh, the two great guys, John and Sean at the nerdlist.com, um, had me on their show. They do a, a, to- a really fun podcast. It's basically just a top 10 every week. Um, they could be things like, uh, the top 10 video game sequels, the top 10 candies, the top 10 sidekicks, or, or this is a good one, the top 10 doomsday scenarios. So they just talk about the lists, their, their, you know, each of their lists from 10 down to one. And uh, it's a lot of fun. So uh, I joined them. Uh, the topic was fictional technology, science fiction technology, our favorite fictional technology. So we covered lots of interesting things. If you're, uh, if that sounds inter- interesting to you, go on to iTunes and uh, or just go to their website and check out the episode. I think you'll enjoy it. And you got Thanks, a few guys. things wrong, Bob. Where can I email them to, oh. to pedantically complain about some of the topics that you discussed? <laughs> yeah. That I that I picked or they picked? Well, oh, you both. Oh, you missed a oh. bunch of stuff. <laughs> well, go go to yeah, go to their website. They've they you can make you can make comments. Oh, great! I was just on a bit of a chat with Ken Plume, which people can find at a site called Fred dot com. It's my second time on there. It's much shorter this time. Last time we went like three hours. This one's only an hour, and it's fun. 
Also, uh, one last quick reminder, the 1023 campaign is taking place February 5th and 6th. Go to uh, www.1023.org.uk or you can email contact at 1023.org.uk. So this is a mass homeopathic overdose and uh, it'll culminate at the uh, QED conference in Manchester, UK. Uh, If you are going to be in the UK, I'm actually going to be at at uh, the London Skeptics in the Pub on February 4th and then at the QED conference in Manchester February 5th and 6th. So this will be at my actual first skeptical outing to the UK. Very exciting. This April 9 to 10, we have the expanded version of Nexus, which is the Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism. We have an awesome lineup this year with our keynote, Phil Plate, who you can't miss, and our MC Todd Robbins, who some of you may have seen about four events ago. We had him MC, and the guy is awesome. Uh, the list can be seen on www.nexuscon.org, N-E-C-S-S-C-O-N.org. We also have George Rad, and I ask you, who the hell doesn't love George? Have you heard him play music? You want to see him again. Oh, and also we have group discounts if you're interested or if you have a number of people, you can email us for more information if you want to know what the numbers are and what discount you can get. If you are a member of the New York City Skeptics or the Ness, you get a discount. So I don't know what else we could do to make this event even cooler than it is. But go online, check out our list of speakers. It's going to be an awesome weekend, a lot of awesome people to meet, a lot of fun stuff going on, and we're really looking forward to seeing you there. <laughs> well, thanks for joining me again this week, guys. Thanks, Thank you, Steve. Thank you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Yeah.